I just want to go ahead and ask that you open your Bible, or you can use the Uversion Bible app where you're using that as well. You can find us on the event tab in the bottom corner. We're going to start a brand new series today. We're going to spend the entire three weeks, the rest of this month, in the, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. And uh, I put it out on Facebook this morning. I wanted to challenge you to go ahead and read the book, or excuse me, the, the chapter of chapter four before you came in this place. I hope that you do that every single week. Because we're going to spend time more just walking through the story instead of reading it in its fullness because it is very long. But we're going to spend three weeks in this chapter. And as you open your Bible app, as you open your Bible, just to kind of lay the foundation for where we are going the next few weeks, I just want to say this. From Genesis chapter 1, God's desire was that he would dwell with you. That he would dwell with his people. That's all he longed for. That's why he created this special place. That's why he created his special creation with Adam and Eve. And he walked through the garden with them. He spent time with them. This very intimate and personal relationship that he had with his favored creation. But we know what happens. We know in Genesis 3 that all things are cut off because of man's rebellion, man's choice to sin and take something better, what they thought was better. But God did not stop there. All throughout the Old Testament, we see as, as he leads his people out of Egypt, as he leads them out of slavery, what does he do? He leads them by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night so that they would know that he is still with them. He, his glory surrounds the mountain where Moses would go up on that mountain to receive the law of God so that his people would know that he was with them. He said, I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to build this tent of meeting so that my spirit may dwell in your midst. And they did it. Hundreds of years later, he, he tasked Solomon to build a, a mighty temple, to build a beautiful temple where his glory would fill that place. It's Shekinah glory, the presence of God, the divine essence of God filled that place. He was there in their midst. And we jump forward into the time of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14 said, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word actually means He tabernacled with us. He came to dwell with us. The message translation says He moved into the neighborhood. That now God was here in the form of Jesus, dwelling with His people. But then everything changed at Easter. His death, His burial, His resurrection his ascension, he sent his spirit so that you and I would always know that if we follow him, if we believe in him, his spirit is now fully alive in us. We are now his temple. We are now his people. He is now dwelling in our midst. He's right here, right now within you. The problem is just like what happened in the garden way back in Genesis 3. It still goes on today. We feel like, no, 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 God, there's something better over here. We know you're something good. We know you say you're better, but we believe that these things are better, so we stop allowing him to dwell in us fully. We start bowing down to idols. We start bowing down to sin. We start filling our minds and our hearts with literally everything else except for him, and then we offer him just the corner of the room. So here, you can be here. We offer him the mother-in-law suite, the detached garage, like, hey, you can go over there, but you can't be fully here. I'll give you 85% of my heart, but the other 15, that's for me. That 15%, that 20%, whatever it is, it's filled with sin, it's filled with self-praise, it's filled with self-worship, it's filled with us. And we start to embrace ourselves fully and start letting go of him. Well, the main theme for the next three weeks is simple, that we can never expect to be filled with the fullness of God until we bring him a heart that is empty and surrendered to him. Earlier, Tony read from the, the prayer from Paul in Ephesians 3 that he's prayed for the church of Ephesus. He prays for us as believers that, may, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. It will not happen if 
our hearts are filled with everything else but Him. Well, in John chapter 4, we come to the city of Sychar, and it's an absolutely beautiful yet emotionally raw story as someone has a true encounter with Jesus. So in John chapter 4, to set the stage, Jesus is very early in his ministry. He's only been traveling around a few weeks, a few months, and he's been in Jerusalem, and now it's time for him to leave. And actually, the, the translation means he removed himself from Jerusalem, knowing that the Pharisees were coming up against him because his popularity was growing, their popularity was shrinking. His disciples were baptizing people in, in huge number. They're like, we don't like this guy. So he removes himself from the situation. He knows it's not yet his time to do all this work in Jerusalem. He knows it's not yet time to come into that interaction with the Pharisees yet. So he removes himself, and he heads north to a city of Galilee. He heads north to a city of Galilee, and it says he had to pass through Samaria. And I have a map on the screen to kind of give you an idea of where he was going. Let me put that map up. Jerusalem's in the, the southern kingdom of Judea. He's going up to Galilee just above Nazareth, and he has to pass through Samaria. This is a big deal. Samaritans were not a prized people in the Jewish eyes. He's getting ready to go through a town who the Jews said were filled with half-breeds, filled with racially messed up people, ethnically messed up people, religiously messed up people, politically messed up people. So when a, a good Jew would travel to the northern kingdom, he would take the far east route along the Jordan River, go right across the mountains and travel up the far eastern side so they would never come into contact with the Samaritan because if they came into a contact with the Samaritan, they were considered defiled. I can't be in your presence. I can't be near you. I would become away unclean. I would have to go to the temple. I have to offer up all these sacrifices. So they would go the very far east route just to avoid seen, just to avoid hearing, just to avoid being in the same space as a Samaritan. It all starts back in 722 B.C. You can find this, and I encourage you to do this later. Go to 2 Kings chapter 17. The Assyrians, the new world power, came in and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, taking them all into captivity. But in the same time, they sent a bunch of people, a bunch of foreign people from other from other other powers that the Assyrians had conquered, they sent him back to Samaria. There was a few Jews left there. And he says, you're going to go settle there. You're going to go intermingle. You're going to go intermarry. And that, sure enough, that's what happened. The Jews who were still there started intermingling, started intermarrying with these foreign people. But with their foreign people came foreign gods, foreign idols, foreign government, foreign forms of worship. And quickly, the entire identity as God's chosen people was now gone. No longer were they marked by who they worshipped. Now they were marked by how many people they worshipped. They, mar- they would worship Baal. They would worship Jehovah in the same breath. They would bow down to God. They would bow down to idols. Their worship was messed up. So much so that in 539 B.C., when the southern kingdom came back to, after captivity, they came back to the land of Samaria, no longer did they see people from their own family. Now they saw people who were very different from them. They were very different religiously and politically. No longer was this God's chosen people. You can see this in the time of Nehemiah when Nehemiah was tasked to come back and rebuild the walls around the city. The very people who stood against them and, and oppressed them, the Samaritans. Why would they not want this wall to be around the city? Because the wall meant that the outside would not come in. The Samaritans were like, no, no, no. This is our land now. 
This is our, this is our people. And they fought against Nehemiah and his leaders. A little bit later in the Maccabean times, as the Greek world, the Greek powers had taken over everything. You hear the word Hellenization. They basically made everybody Greek. You can stay Jewish. You can stay in your own heritage, but now you're going to be Greek also. You can worship Jehovah. You can worship Yahweh, but you're also going to worship Zeus and these many gods that we have for you. The Samaritans are like, oh, bring it on. Let's do it. Sounds like a good time. So next thing you know, they're, they're dedicating their temple on Mount Gerizim, not to Jehovah, not to Yahweh. They're dedicating their temple to Zeus. This is why the Jews despised the Samaritans. They saw them as sellouts. They worshiped false gods. They worshiped many gods. They no longer were people of faith. They were no longer people of God. But it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. It wasn't like he was in a hurry. We can tell from context that Jesus was not in a rush to get out of Galilee. He wasn't, a, he wasn't in a rush to get to Galilee. Excuse me. It wasn't like he pulled out his phone and said, Ways, avoid tolls. Take me through Samaria. He's like, I have to go through Samaria. What does that mean? It means out of necessity. That it was ordained for him to go through Samaria. God had it in his mind that Jesus needed to have this moment. He was sending Jesus for an encounter for his people. For these people, for this time, for this moment, something special was getting ready to happen as the foundation for his ministry, the foundation for the followers that followed him was laid. This was going to be a big moment. So he comes to the city of Sychar. Well, in the middle of Sychar, at the, at the foothills of Mount Gerizim, there is a well, Jacob's well. You go back in the story of Genesis where Jacob gets that well and he digs that well. This, this well is actually still there in the city. There's an Eastern Orthodox monastery actually built around. It's actually pretty fascinating. But it's at this well that Jesus comes at noon and he rests for a little bit. Worn out from his trip, worn out for all the things that just happened in Judea, worn out from all the things that happened in Jerusalem, he's going to take a break and rest at this well. And it says it's about noon. So it's at the hottest part of the day. The Jewish day went from 6 to 6. No one would be out at noon. They'd be in their homes where it was cool. They'd be in their workplaces avoiding the hot sun. But this is where Jesus is, seated and reclined at the well, waiting. And it was a normal day for everybody else. And we see the story of a woman traveling to this well at noon. She's traveling there at noon because she's an outcast. She's a misfit. She has a reputation She's going just to get water, but she's going there at a time when no one else would be there because she doesn't want to be seen, she doesn't want to be heard, she doesn't want to be noticed. While other, all the other women were going out in the early morning, in the cool of the evening, she's like, I don't want to be around them, and they don't want to be around me, so I'm going to go at the hottest part of the day just to get water for her and her house. She walks this path every single day, receiving looks, receiving judgment, receiving condemnation, no one speaks to her. If they do, it's not pleasant. But this is the path that she desired to take every day. This was her path of endless shame. She knows why she's there, but this is what she's chosen. Never in a million years did she expect to see this encounter that she was getting ready to have. She walks up to the well, and who does she see? She sees a Jew, but not just any Jew. She sees a rabbi sitting there. Sitting there. And you think about awkward already. It's already going to be awkward. And he immediately says to her, give me a drink. Already, this is already a scandalous scene. If there was social media, if there was cell phones at this time, it would be everywhere. 
Because Jews did not associate with Samaritans, but more than that, never would a Jewish rabbi ever associate with a woman if she was alone, let alone a Samaritan woman who they considered unclean. But this Jewish rabbi, this Jesus, was there, and he offers to give her a drink. This begins a very raw conversation. She says, how, how, do you, how, do you, how would I give you a drink? There's nothing that you have. You can't. The well is deep. How would you draw this water out? He says, if you knew what I had, if you knew what I was truly offering to you, you would realize I'm offering you something better, I'm offering you something greater, and you don't even realize it yet. See, this path of shame that she was on was due to the fact she longed to be full. She longed to be whole. She longed to be complete so that she would literally go to the highest extremes, the lowest positions in the world in order to be full. But yet all she was finding was that she was empty spiritually, emotionally, and physically. No matter where she searched, there was this giant void in her life. And in a moment, he was going to reveal the ultimate thing that she needed, but there needed to be room for it to dwell. So he offers her this living water and says the gift of God. It's not just physical water. He's actually offering her right now himself. He says, I will offer you myself this living water, this living water that will spring up as a well within you and wash you and cleanse you and purify you to remove the dirt, remove the shame, remove the stain of sin. But she quickly misunderstands, and that misunderstanding leads her to deflect. She immediately thinks, you mean you have something that I can have that would never bring me here every single day? I will absolutely take it. But pressed into an uncomfortable situation, what does she do? She does what almost every one of us do. I believe that when every single one of us are pressed into an uncomfortable situation, we have one or two topics of conversation we usually result to. Family, work, or we make it more awkward by going to the other things we love to talk about. Religion, politics, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, I don't know what to do right now. You're making me uncomfortable, so I'm going to talk about these other things to make it worse. She immediately jumps right into religion. She jumps right into this religious debate with Jesus. She says, wait, 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 wait. Are you greater than Jacob? Because he's our forefather too. He's our ancestor also. I know he's yours, but she's now showing how important she feels that she is as a Samaritan to this Jewish rabbi just to draw the line and say, like, hey, we're important too. We share a common ancestor. He dug this well. Are you better than him? He says, I have something for you that's greater, so much greater. So he says, she says, so give me this water so I may never have to come here again. It's not about she wants to receive what he's offering. She never wants to walk this path again. She's like, if I never have to walk through that town again, give me whatever you have. If I never have to be judged again, give me what you have. If, no, if that stops those women from looking at me in shame, give me what you have. I don't want to be here ever again. But quickly we realize she's misunderstanding because he's not offering her any kind of physical water. He's offering her something spiritual. So he goes further, and this is where it kind of gets too close for comfort. He says, all right, go call your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right in saying this because you've had five, and then that one that you're now with is now not your husband. And we're, we, we read this, we're like, oh, Jesus, foot's in the mouth. Awkward, don't go there. All that Jesus is doing now, he's trying to show her where she's trying to find satisfaction, where she's trying to find completeness and wholeness and where she's coming up empty every single time. He's trying to show her an act of not condemnation, but an act of compassion. 
Because he longs for her to realize he wants to dwell with her, and her deepest need is for her to dwell with him. But it's going to take a lot of uncomfortable conversations as he begins to lift the veil of her past, lift the veil of her sin, so she may see her needs, so she may see him fully. Maybe this is the very first time she's ever come to a realization of like, man, I am messed up. So he pressed in further. He's like, no. Yes, you have had many husbands. The one you're now with, not your husband. You're just sleeping around. As if Jesus is saying to him, do you see the issue here? Do you see where you're trying to be made whole and you're not? Like how how many times are you going to do this? How many more people in the city are you going to sleep with until you realize it will not complete you? You are not half a person. He kept pressing and pressing, asking, do you honestly feel, feel full? If so, if so, if you do feel like you are full, why are you still on this path? Why are you here at this well right now? Why weren't you here six hours ago? Why won't you be here six hours later? Why are you here right now? If it makes you feel so good, if it makes you feel so worthy, why are you here? But as her sins are laid bare before her, as the sins are laid bare by Jesus to her, she quickly deflects again and continues the religious debate. She was uncomfortable, so she debated. He had too close to home, so she argued. So she decided, okay, where else can I take this? Let's raise the old conversation about where should we worship. She's like, hey, I know you Jews think you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, in that temple. But we Samaritans think we can worship here at Gerizim. This has been going on for centuries you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 27, the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land and Moses gives them final instructions. He says, half of you will go over on Mount Ebal. Half of you will go on Mount Gerizim. And the Levites will stand in the middle and proclaim God's law, God's word, God's covenant. Those on Ebal would, would ring out God's curses upon people. Those on Mount Gerizim would read out, ring out God's blessings. So therefore, naturally, they think, okay, if God's blessings were to be out on Mount Gerizim, this is where God's presence is. So we should worship here. But meanwhile, the Jews thought, well, no, you commissioned Solomon hundreds of years ago to build this magnificent and beautiful temple. That's where your presence is. Your presence is there. Jesus was not wanting to get into this long debate. He wasn't going to say, you should worship here, you should worship here. He actually goes on further and saying, you all, meaning you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. He's like, you are worshiping, you think you're worshiping my father, but you're actually worshiping my father plus Baal, my father plus a wooden idol, my father plus a golden idol. You're worshiping yourself. He says, true worship is not about a location. True worship is worship of spirit and truth. He's like, God is not confined to your temple or to our temple. You are to worship him in spirit and in truth, which means that you come into a place where you fully realize him, you fully embrace him, you let go of every other thing and just enjoy him and his presence as his presence dwells within you. He's asking this woman, this woman who has embraced every other thing that attempted to bring her satisfaction. She's embraced all those things. She's embraced herself. She's embraced her sin. He's asking her to let go of all those things and embrace him. That's not worship. Well, she responds, well, I know, I know the Messiah is coming. I know when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all these mysteries to us. He'll explain where we should worship. And he, now we see one of the most beautiful sections of scripture in all of 
the Bible. He says to her, woman, I am he. For the first time in all the Gospels, Jesus reveals himself fully to this woman. Not yet has he revealed himself fully to the disciples. It's clear next week when we see how they still don't get it. But he reveals himself fully for the first time to a woman. Not just any woman, a Samaritan woman, but not just any Samaritan woman. One with a terrible reputation. This is who he chose to be the first recipient of God's grace and mercy as his presence came to dwell with us. And we see here, because of this encounter, we see a woman with a changed life. It says this, So the woman, so the woman left her water jar. After this encounter, she leaves the very thing she picked up on her back every single day and carried on this path of shame that she walked every single day. She left the very thing that defined who she was. She left the very thing that defined her shame, that defined her guilt, and she left it right there after a true encounter with Jesus. No longer was she a woman defined by her sin. No longer was she an adulterous woman. Now she was a child of God because she has just seen and encountered Jesus. And her life was now different. What did it do? It compelled her to run away so fast that she left that jar and she ran to the city. She didn't go home to get the guy. She went to the city. She went to the very people who mocked her, who ridiculed her, who she probably even slept with. And she says, look, I have seen. I have maybe, is this, is this the Messiah? Come hear him. Come see him. Now she has a testimony. And she's using it right away. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. All that's gone. Now she has love and the Spirit of God is dwelling within her. She's excited. She's ready for God to dwell within her and God to dwell within them. Her life's been changed and now she desires that their lives would be changed. The weight is now gone and she can run freely with him. No longer was she embracing herself. No longer was she embracing these multiple men. No longer was she embracing satisfaction. She was now embracing Jesus fully. She's embracing this one who came to seek and save the lost, and she was definitely one of them, who came to a broken world, and that's the world that she lived in. That's who he came for. This story can be way too familiar to us, isn't it? Now, what I mean by that is, yes, we've heard this story before, but I'm talking about the familiarity of this uncomfortable position. See, all of us at some point or another will find ourselves on a similar path, Every single day, we feel like we're carrying burdens, we're carrying shame, we're carrying guilt. Just sin is entangling us. We cannot walk a straight line anymore. We're like, I, I, I want out of this. I, I don't like this, but do we really ever do anything to fix it? Or no, 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 it's more like the woman. I'm just going to embrace this life. I'll just sleep around with whoever I want to sleep around with. That's just who I am now. I'll just be this wretched sinner that everyone believes that I am. I'll just be this defiled person like they think I am. I'll just embrace myself. I'll embrace my shame. I'll embrace my sin. But we're constantly looking for ways out. We're constantly looking for satisfaction. We're constantly looking for completeness. So what do we do? We go to great lengths to be made whole, to be filled. But do you want to share where you go to those things? No. We don't want everybody to know those parts of our life. We don't want people to know that this is why we step into another unhealthy, another unhealthy relationship. Because I just want to be whole. I want to be loved. So I'm going to let anybody who shows me a little attention love me, even though it's destroying my soul. Oh, maybe I'll jump into just sleeping around. 
What's love, really? I mean, the world's messed up love. We forget that Jesus never messed that up. He's shown us the full extent of it. Maybe we'll just find it in abusing our bodies, pumping fluids or substances into our veins just to get high for a moment, just to forget things for a moment, just to, hey, I don't want to be so clear-headed because if I, when I'm clear-headed, all I think about is how messed up I am. But when I drink, when I pump these fluids in my body, all I think about is how good I feel for a moment. I feel better. I feel great, but then that high is gone. That buzz is gone. And now you feel just as pathetic as you were when you started, right? Or even further, we start seeing men and women go into the deepest parts of the internet, right? Guys, it's not just a man thing. Studies are showing women are doing the same thing. You go to the deepest parts of the internet, and if, if, if God were to see your search history, you're like, ah, that, 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 was, that was him. It's not my computer. But just for a glimpse at a picture or a video, this brings you 30 seconds of satisfaction. But I feel better, right? No, you don't. You feel empty. You feel unloved. You feel unworthy. You feel disgusting. Maybe the, maybe the thing we don't talk about enough as believers today we talk about gluttony. I'll just continue to eat, 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 and so my body is just being destroyed. But I feel better for a moment. I don't like myself, but I feel better for a second. It's not just those things. We also do this with good things all the time. I'll just continue to serve, serve, serve until I have no more room in my life for anything else, but I'm doing good things. So Jesus is good with that, right? Or maybe we prioritize literally everything else except for the things that God wants us to prioritize. So you keep adding things to your schedule, you keep adding volunteering, you keep adding work, you keep adding more and more stuff, and everybody else suffers because of it. Not just your spouse, not just your kids, but your Savior. And then we ask ourselves, after all that, it's like, why do I feel empty? Why do I feel this massive void in my life? Why can't I fill it? I just want to worship, but I can't. I'll never go in there because I just don't feel like I have it in me to do it. I won't worship because I just don't think I can worship right now. Why can't I worship? Listen, for God to be worshipped in all aspects of our life, you must rid yourselves of self-worship and praise. Ultimately, what we are doing when we do all these things is worshiping ourselves and praising ourselves. Worshiping our priorities, worshiping our pleasures, worshiping our preferences, worshiping ourselves and not God. There's a reason why we can't worship God in those moments, because you're only worshiping ourselves. And we feel empty. So therefore, we must rid ourselves of this self-pleasure. We must rid ourselves of this self-praise. But listen, doing that is extremely uncomfortable. Look how uncomfortable it was for this woman. It's the same for us. Another pastor one time described this sensation as holy discomfort. It's a necessary discomfort. As your sins are being laid bare, as Jesus is lifting the veil of your sins, of your heart, of your pain, of your shame before you, and as you start seeing all these things before you, are like, I don't like that. God, step back. So, I, so what do we do? We deflect. God, uh, he's worse. He needs the baptism more than I do. Tony, dunk him one more time, right? He needs a little bit more. Oh, uh, man, I'm not that bad. I mean, like, my sin's like probably like this high. But those heathens over there, they're like right, right here. 
We start deflecting. Because what we don't want people to see, what we don't want our Savior to see, even though he's the one that sees all, we don't want him to see the cycle of sin that we can't get ourselves out of. Why do we keep messing up? Why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep sleeping around? Why do we keep going on these places on the internet? Why do we keep doing all this stuff? It's because never have we let him have space to do it himself. Never have we allowed him to come into our lives to humble ourselves. Listen, humbling ourselves is difficult, but listen, let me tell you something. Being humbled by someone else is far worse. This woman here is being humbled before the Savior of the world. But it's actually one of the most beautiful moments you could ever go through. It's so freeing. Why? Because when you realize, I don't have to walk this path every day because my Savior already has. He has walked this path of shame as he took my sin, my shame, my guilt upon his shoulders and marched through a crowded streets, carrying a cross, then taking that cross upon his back, being nailed to it, dying for us. That's why Hebrews says he despised the cross. He scorned its shame. The path of shame has already been walked by our Savior. He's showing us we don't have to do this anymore. He is right there with us, ready to walk next to us and offer us a new way, a new opportunity, a new life. And again, as uncomfortable as this is, as this veil is lifted off of our sin and our lives, what we need to realize, this is not judgment, this is compassion, because not only is he showing us the, the, the deepest parts of our lives as he lifts that veil, he's also lifting the veil of himself, and he says to, says to us, I am your Messiah. I am your Savior. You can't do it. I can. I have. That is so compassionate. But when this happens to us, not only do we deflect, the reason why we deflect is because our insecurities and our fears take over. Because the first reaction is the question of what will I lose? The insecurities of I want to be loved. Maybe they won't love me anymore. The insecurities of I need to be respected. Maybe they won't respect me anymore. Insecurities of position. Maybe I can't have this position anymore. Insecurities of being alone. Maybe I'm going to be alone. You know what insecurities I'm talking about. You know what insecurities and fears plague your mind right now. We all have them. We just got to be honest with ourselves and address it. Also, what we're doing is what Jeremiah prophesied about in chapter 2, verse 13, when he said this. That my people, my people have committed two sins. They've committed two sins. They have forsaken me as Lord. They have forsaken me as Lord, and they have dug broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Like, what does that mean? He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. The same thing that he's offering here. He says, I'm the fountain of living water. I'm the source of living water. I'm the source of not temporal satisfaction, but eternal satisfaction, eternal glory. I am the source of it, and they have forsaken me. You've chosen other gods. You've chosen other lovers. You've chosen all these other things except me. You've forsaken me. And that's already one evil. But the second evil that you are digging broken cisterns. You're digging wells that just simply cannot hold water. You're looking for satisfaction in a relationship that will never offer that satisfaction. You're looking for pleasure in your internet. It's never going to give it to you. 
None of these things can hold water. He says, why bow down to the things that can't hold water and come to me, the fountain of living water? This well, when he says this to the woman, this well will leave you thirsty again. But me, I will never allow you to be thirsty again. I will give you what you desperately need. So my question for us today is, where have you forsaken your Lord? It's a difficult question, but it's one that we all must come to at some point. Whether in our life or just daily, where have we forsaken our Lord? He's supposed to be our first and our last. Where have we placed him? Just on the back burner. Where are we forsaking our Lord? And the second question, where are you digging broken cisterns that just can't hold water? Who are you placing in the position of God? What are you placing in the position of God? Only God can give you what you desperately need. Only God is a fountain of living water. No one else can be that. Nothing else can offer even a glimpse of that. Jesus wants to dwell with you. Nothing has changed since Genesis 1. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with us, this broken people who are so messed up. You know it. I know it. You know the source of your brokenness. You know the source of your shame. So does Jesus. But yet he still wants to dwell with you and me. He still wants to dwell within our hearts, within our lives, and allow his spirit to fill us up so we can experience the fullness of him. See, the, 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 the issue that I take with Christianity sometimes, Christians in general, we expect to see all the fullness of God's glory in eternity. And while, yes, that is true, we live lives of just depressed states now. Oh, I can't experience God until I'm in heaven with him. I can't experience his fullness until I see him. I can't really worship freely until I'm there. This world's just holding me back. It's simply not true. That God has sent his spirit right now to dwell within you until you can taste him, you can see him, and you know that he is good. And it can change your life. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that right now we can see this place, this world. Do you think it's broken? Yes, it is. But God has sent you and I to be here to transform this place and to look more and more like heaven and us more and more like him. That's why he has sent his spirit. So us as his image bearers will look like him and bear his image to a world who desperately needs to know that there is hope and there is peace. So when we come to this encounter with Christ, whether it's today or every day, we should not leave here walking away in shame. We should never leave here going away with guilt or sin. We leave here with the same compassion, the same excitement, and the same joy that this woman experienced. Yes, her sin was laid before her, but now she has received grace, just as you and I have in the fullness of God on the cross of Jesus. And now we can go out these doors. We can sing songs today. We can do all this with a new compassion, a new passion in our hearts that changes everything, that makes everyone wonder, why are you different? Why are you so excited? Why are you so joyful? Why do you sing those songs? Why do you have this story? But the question is, will you even attempt, will we even attempt to even make room for him? Will you make room for him? He wants to dwell with you, and he's done all the work already on the cross to make that available. Now it's on you to make room for your king. The, the throne of your heart is reserved for him alone.
no one else or nothing else. As we close here today, I want to offer up a prayer to you written from author A.W. Tozer. And if you get the one sheet, I encourage you to read this prayer every single day. This prayer has wrecked me in my life and it's challenging me even when I first read it two years ago. It challenges me today as well. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes as you hear this prayer over your hearts. May this be your prayer today. Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but do come. Please root from my heart all the things which I have cherished so long, which have become a very part of my living self, so that thou mayst enter and dwell there without rival. Then shalt thou make this place thy glorious feet. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for thyself will be the light of it. There shall be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, if you come to this realization that the very encounter that we're talking about is the same one that you are experiencing right now, you come to the realization that I have never addressed the shame, the guilt, the horror, the heartbreak, the sin in my life. Do not leave these doors until offering them over to God. Maybe you walked in here this morning in fear and with trembling because you thought, everybody, if they only knew what I've done, if they only knew what I've said, they would reject me. Listen, me to you. Anybody in here would reject you, then we are not the people of God. Because the people of God worship a God who has not rejected you, who went so far to accept you, to love you, to embrace you by going to a cross for you, to take your shame to your sin and your punishment so that you could have life and life to the full. So this morning, I challenge you, if you want to pray with the pastor, I'm up here, Tony's here, there's deacons around the room. We would love to pray with you. And I promise you, when you come forward, we will embrace you because you are a child of God made in his image and you are worthy of dignity and respect. And we will push you to our Savior who is also ready to embrace you, to restore you, to make you new, to let you know that the old that you have held onto for so long, it is gone. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. The rest of us in this space, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this. Listen, we said that the baptism will be open next week. We are ready to party with you as you share the entire world. Hey, I belong to Christ and he belongs to me. So for the first time, if you want to let Christ dwell within you, come forward. We'd love to pray with you. The rest of us, if there's just something you need to pray with, there's a hurt, there's a pain, there's a brokenness, you just want to share it with a brother or a sister, we are here with you but there's also a person probably seated next to you who would love you just as much as we do. Do not walk this world without accountability. Do not walk this world alone because you were never meant to walk this world alone. You were never meant to walk this world in shame and guilt. That's why we have Jesus who's ready to live in all of us through his spirit. Would you stand and sing with us as we close out today's service? If you wanna pray, the altar is open. We'd love to pray with you. Whatever you need, lay it at the feet of Jesus, ready for him to move 
in your life. Would you make room for him as we sing the praises of our Father today?